Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. I have the privilege to sit down with Dr. Frank Mitlerner, who's a professor and air quality specialist in cooperative extension in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. Frank Mitlerner is one of the world-leading experts in climate change. He is a very strong advocate for truth. And again, in this podcast, it's really all about transparent conversations. And Frank is committed to making a difference for generations to come. As part of his position with UC Davis and the Cooperative Extension, he collaborates with the animal agriculture sector to create better efficiencies and mitigate pollutants. As you will hear, Frank is very passionate about understanding and mitigating air admissions from livestock operations, as well as studying the implications of these admissions on the health of farm workers and neighboring communities. I will tell you this, Dr. Mitlerner's dedication and commitment to his fellow human is outstanding. And with all the noise in the industry, it's really, really important to listen to those that are experts in the field. And Frank is one of those experts. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is the Apollo Wearable. I love this device. This is probably one of the wearables I am most excited about. It's because I wear the Apollo wearable on my ankle. And what I love about it, it improves the way your body manages stress. The Apollo wearable helps you sleep better, stay calm, focus, be more present, feel less overwhelmed. It has a stimulatory uh, vibration, which is... One of the ways in which the Apollo wearable works was developed by neuroscientists and physicians. Apollo delivers silent vibrations, and this conditions your nervous system to recover, rebalance after stress. Unlike other health wearables, it doesn't track your biometrics, which I think is really valuable because oftentimes we can become very distracted with all of the metrics out there. It actually improves your health. The Apollo wearable is amazing. It is safe. It is natural. You don't need drugs and it doesn't have side effects. Wear Apollo on your wrist or like me on your ankle. You can even clip it onto your clothing. You'll get $40 off the Apollo wearable at apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion for $40 off. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Cozy Earth. Now, I've been using Cozy Earth products for a very long time. Um, Case in point, their sheets. You know when you go to a hotel and the hotel bed and the sheets are so soft, you can't wait to get in? Well, I love Cozy Earth so much that I actually can't wait to get home. These Cozy Earth sheets are literally the softest. They're made from premium 100% viscous from bamboo, which means, again, super soft, lightweight, temperature regulating, so you'll sleep more comfortably year-round. They offer a 10-year warranty. And listen, whether it's 
best-selling luxury sheets that are ultra comfortable or loungewear or their new bath collection. You will absolutely love Cozy Earth. My audience can save 35% on Cozy Earth. That's get cozy now. So go to CozyEarth.com slash Dr. Lion and save 35% all backed by a 100 night sleep guarantee. CozyEarth.com slash D-R-L-Y-O-N. I promise you guys will absolutely love these products. Frank Mitlerner, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you on. And one of the goals of this podcast is to really have transparent conversations. As you can imagine, in this landscape, that is hard to come by. You are a world-class expert in climate change and agriculture. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. I just want to start out by asking you, as any expert in the field, it's as if over a decade or to two decades, there is changes in the proverbial environment, whether it's more hostile, there's more media. You've been doing this for how many years? I've been on the faculty as a professor for 20 years, and uh, I've been working in this general uh, area for about 30 years. And in the last three decades, have you seen changes in terms of what is discussed in the media and what is discussed in science? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I have seen real food fights breaking out over what kind of food we eat and uh, how that food should be produced and uh, how this food affects the environment. And uh, sometimes it feels it's it's not just arguments and uh, discussions being held, but real, literate fights being fought. And uh, it's not just going after topical areas, but it's going after people. So I've been personally attacked numerous times. Um, that's something that I've seen. And, you know, I have to commend you. It's not easy. It's not easy to get in the arena. And it takes a very special kind of person that's willing to do that. Why? Why do you do it? Why do you subject yourself to the criticism and the controversy? You know, as a professor, you have to choose. You either do just what you're paid for, which is do your research and teach students and then get the heck out and go back home and relax uh, for the rest of the day, or um, or you might want to have uh, more impact and um, really bring into the, the overall discussion your subject matter expertise. I have found that the general area of impacts of livestock on the environment or animal welfare issues around livestock and so on, that these discussions are oftentimes held by people who have a very strong agenda, a very strong agenda on the one side or the other. Sometimes that agenda is elevated up to religious levels, okay, where people have a religious belief that we should or should not eat one diet over the other. And uh, and uh, the radical voices out there are uh, dominating the sphere. And I, I think that's wrong. So if you are a subject matter expert, and if you can contribute to this uh, discussion, why wouldn't I? You have a responsibility to do so. 
I think so. I, I do think that it is my responsibility. I'm paid by taxpayers' money, and the taxpayer wants to know, the public wants to know, what are the impacts of our food choices on the environment, on animal health, and so on, on animal welfare. Um, I am an expert in this field, and so, yes, that is my responsibility. That brings us into the first and probably most important question of this whole conversation, really this transparent conversation. Can we eat our way out of climate change? I don't think that we can eat our way out of climate change, but we can definitely reduce the impacts of our food choices on climate. And so this is not the same. Uh, what I'm saying is that we can, for example, reduce the impacts of animal agriculture, plant agriculture on the environment at the producer level, and quite significantly so. We're talking about 30-40% of reductions of greenhouse gases that are achievable. Um, so that's at the producer level. At the consumer level, in my opinion, the main lever is not what we eat, but how much we waste. Because about 40%, 4-0 of the food produced in this country and throughout the world never makes it through a human digestive tract. It's thrown away. And that dwarfs the impact of any individual food choices on the environment. We must waste less food. As it relates to food waste and just in terms of the U.S., in terms of U.S. agriculture and greenhouse gas, what percentage of agriculture plays a role? Or, or actually, a better question is, as it relates to overall greenhouse gas, does agriculture play a major role? Yeah, agriculture um, plays a major role. About 10% of all greenhouse gases in this country are associated with uh, agricultural uh, activities. About half of that is plant agriculture. The other half is animal agriculture. That's according to the Environmental Protection Agency. So let's say plus or minus 10%. And that's, that number holds true for most developed countries. In developing countries of the third world and emerging countries, those numbers are much higher. But here in the, in the developed world, it's about 10%. Uh, food waste is 40% for zero. And that is a travesty. I think everybody should agree that, that it is. And, um, and various food types are wasted at different rates, with the most perishable foods being fruits and vegetables being wasted around 60%, 60. Animal source yeah. foods 10 to 20. That's a really interesting. So if 10% of, you know, if greenhouse gas really is 10% agriculture, what is the rest? So the lion's share is uh, everything fossil fuel related. So the transportation sector, the um, power production and use sector, uh, the cement industry and so on. Those fossil fuel sectors amount to 80%, 80. Uh, they include all the activities we all um, conduct every day. And um, you don't really hear much criticism of those um, because there, there are not many activists around that. But uh, it seems like the focus is on particularly animal agriculture and here cattle. That's where many of the activists are out there and say, this is what we should focus on. I just want to highlight what you said. In the news media, it's, it, it seems as if what we hear is if we go plant-based, we're going to be able to save not only the U.S., but we're going to have massive global impact. However, 
what I'm hearing you say is that actually, even on the uh, uh, in the U.S., not e- not even globally, that uh, as most developed countries, agriculture accounts for ten percent, and that's roughly split between animal agriculture and crops. And the lion's share is fossil fuel. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I don't think that this is uh, disputed by any expert in this field. Uh, in the United States, just to give you the numbers. Uh, all of animal agriculture combined makes up about 4% of all greenhouse gases. A study was done to show what the most extreme uh, shift would would uh, would result in, namely a shift from the current diet, the omnivore diet that most of us enjoy, to a vegan diet. Let's say all Americans were to go vegan tomorrow. What would that do to greenhouse gas emissions? It would reduce 2.6% of total greenhouse gas emissions in this country. A meatless Monday, for example, would reduce 0.3% of total emissions, greenhouse gas emissions in this country. Now, I I accept that these numbers are, you know, 2.6 is not nothing, it's something, but it's certainly not what many of those um, that toot this uh, plant-based alternative approach um, are putting out as being the, the major solution. That is not the major solution. The major solution is that we stop our reliance on fossil fuels. That is a major solution to a changing climate. Um, yes, we do need to do our share in animal agriculture, in agriculture overall. I don't think that's disputable. But we have to be realistic as to what that would do. Where do you think some of these myths come from and what are the most common myths that you've heard, right? So there's fact and fiction. Well, I see that those people who are most vocal are either within a religious circle. Um, there are religious circles that uh, are total anti-animal agriculture and uh, meat consumption. Uh, the Adventists are, are a very powerful circle uh, that uh, wants us to really stop consuming animal source foods, and they are uh, presented and represented in many dietitian and nutritionist circles. Uh, then we have um, people who are very anti-livestock, always have been, or anti-animal use in general. That would be the PETAs in the world, the HSUS and other uh, animal activist organizations. And then there are also a sizable number, a large number of journalists who fall in these camps. And um, I would say nine out of 10 journalists these days, uh, when reporting about animal agriculture or the consumption of animal source foods, uh, falls into some kind of anti-livestock camp. And uh, in my opinion, that's not reflective of what the people want or want to hear or uh, what people eat, Um, but it represents a relatively small fringe. And that is um, not good because what we really need to know is if 96 or more percent of people want to eat animal source foods and won't stop it, won't change it, then the question remains, how can we produce that food with the least possible environmental footprint? And how do we produce that food in the most animal animal welfare friendly way? That is the question. And discussing that is fruitful and gets us someplace. But saying let's stop eating animal source foods is just a ridiculous, a ridiculous uh, idea. And, you know, so. Yes, I would absolutely agree with you. That brings me to a really important question that people ask a lot of the difference between 
grass-fed versus feedlot-fed animals. Um, I'd love for you to speak on that in terms of the impact on the environment. So this is one of the most um, misunderstood issues out there. So let me give you a simple example. Let's say we were to compare grass-finished versus corn-finished beef. Um, let me walk you through the two principal differences. So all beef cattle in the United States um, spend at least two-thirds of their lives on pasture. Okay, so let's start with the corn-finished animals. A corn-finished animal spends two-thirds of its life first with their, with, their, with their mom, with their mama cow, and then uh, some more time by themselves until they weigh around 700 pounds. And then they leave the pasture and they go into a feedlot for another four or so months. When these animals are 14, that's one four, 14 to 16 months of age, they go to slaughter because they are fully matured. Their muscle and fat, everything is fully matured. So 14 to 16 months of age, less than one and a half years. Their grass-finished peers only stay on pasture. And because the nutritional basis is less than in the feedlot, they spend much more time on pasture, namely a total of 26 to 30 months. So almost twice as long. Uh, to mature and make it to slaughter. So that means that the grass-finished animals have way more time, twice as much almost, uh, way more time to spend uh, eating and excreting and belching and drinking water and so on than their corn-finished peers. That has an impact on their lifetime emissions. But secondly, what generates the methane, which is the main greenhouse gas from cattle, is the consumption of roughage. The more roughage or another word for roughage is fiber, the more roughage is in the diet of an animal, the more methane they produce. On pasture, the roughage content is very high. In a feedlot, the roughage content is 10% or so. As a result, the feedlot cattle produce hardly any methane. It is true that we are doing research on feedlot emissions and so on, but they are not the main issue around methane and cattle. The main issue is really what happens on pasture. Now, it's this, um, this idea and this image that we have that animals on pasture are greener, and greener is good, and greener is better for the environment. But overall, the feedlot-finished animals have approximately a 20 to 30% lower and not higher carbon footprint, even if you consider the fact that the feedlot animals are fed diets that have to be raised elsewhere and shipped around the country and so on, like corn. But um, the carbon footprint is still lower and not higher. I think that that's probably very surprising for so many people who are listening. Yeah, I, I have to say, I don't want to be part of, um, of a debate whether we should eat the one or the other. In my opinion, uh, we need both. If we were to only go grass-based, uh, we would need way, way, way more space in this country uh, set aside for cattle. The feedlots are an important part of the beef-producing situation in the United States. Um, not just does it produce beef efficiently, but it adds a taste aspect to the meat that people value. And that is the fat the intramuscular fat being in those animals and in the products in those steaks, the so-called marbling, which is distinctively different in feedlot-finished versus grass-finished animals. Um, and so Americans, whether we want it or not, 
are drawn to this more tender meat and the meat that has this more white fat, which is a result of the corn finishing. And so um, that's the way it has developed. You know, um, I think you said something that's very important. Everything that you're saying is very important. There's a, a, a subtle way of thinking about this, and it's probably not so subtle. How many people do we have to feed? Is it we have 7 billion people? Maybe. Well, I'm a little over I'm a, I'm a little over 50 years. When I was a little boy, we had 3 billion people. Today we have 8 billion, and by the time I'm an old man, we'll have 9.5 billion. In other words, throughout my lifetime, human population will have tripled. Tripled. But the natural resources to feed these t these people will not have tripled. And that just simply means one thing. How can we increase um how can we increase the amount of food to feed a tripled human population without depleting all natural resources? And I think we are all concerned about that. We're all thinking about it. But the approach is very different. And it is not held, these discussions are not held in a civil way, in a productive way, but in a confrontational way. And that needs to stop. We are talking about producing food. Food is super important to all of us. It's absolutely essential. Let's find ways to discuss it and to find solutions that get us to where we need to go. That is very noble. And I know if anybody can do it, you're going to be able to do it. You're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it. Um, how do we, you know, how are we going to feed all these people um, if we choose one extreme diet or the other? If an individual goes plant-based or there's this narrative that, going plant-based is going to save the planet or be better for climate change. I think that what I'm hearing you say is that's not reasonable and we have to collectively figure out how we are going to provide essential, essential macronutrients, really, and also essential amino acids to people globally. Um, how do you think that we're going to be able to do that? And I know Europe and other countries are, are a bit, you know, when we look at those places, that's perhaps what we're going to be up against. What do you think, you know, what can we do? Where do you think that some of these solutions lie? So if you talk to nutritionist dietitians, they will tell you that even currently, we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. We eat way less than we are supposed to eat. Um, and uh, for decades, we have not tried to get kids to eat more broccoli and more, you know, all the other vegetables and so on. They're just not going to, okay? They, they just don't want to. So the question is, I have two little kids myself. And uh, I know this fight as to not just eat this, but also eat some of that. Um, but it's not going to happen. I mean, sometimes we are more successful than in other days. But um, uh, overall, you will not just tell people what to eat. Okay, Our food choices are personal choices, just like our partner choices, our religious choices, our political choices. Food choices are individual choices we make ourselves. And there's nobody out there who can tell people to change that. So if, um, if that percentage of people who are in the vegan vegetarian community remains hovering at the same levels as it has been, as they have been over the last few decades, and there's no change in sight, then we need to think about how do we produce what people want to eat, what they are drawn to, in ways that is sustainable. Okay, that is the question at hand and not knee-jerking to some activists who say we all need to just drop animal source foods. It's not going to happen. 
And they, I, I think they know that it's not going to happen. The question now is, do we continue uh, responding to these extremists, mm -hmm. to these activists, and try to entertain their agenda? Or do we actually work on something that's reasonable and achievable? I have seen myself, through the work I do, that farmers in the animal agricultural arena can reduce, for example, methane by 20-30%. The same is true for other pollutants. Working with these farmers is as important as working with health professionals. Producing food and providing health are the two most important sectors of society. I think we owe it to our farmers to work with them and not against them. I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, the reality is, is we don't treat our farmers well. Um, it's, it's, it's a shame. Uh, and I'm sure that you agree. I, I tell you, I'm very, I'm very concerned about, I'm very concerned about how farmers are treated. I don't know if, uh, if your listeners know this, but we have about 2 million farms in this country. But of the 2 million, 1.5 million have an annual revenue of less than $25,000. They're pretty much hobby farmers. And here comes the critical statistics. We have only 80,000 80, farmers in this country that produce two-thirds of all the food we all consume. And the average age of these farmers is 60 years, 60. Hmm. Meaning... The vast majority of food in this country is, by, is produced by people who are close to retirement age. And if they go out, who will produce our food? Um, <laughs> that is a very concerning thought. I, I want to circle back to something that you said earlier in terms of the agriculture produces 10% of greenhouse gas. The industry, fossil fuel, is roughly 80%. Is that accurate? Yes, why, and I don't want to tie any um, conclusion here that perhaps doesn't exist, but it seems as if the um, animal agriculture conversation is a bit of a smokescreen versus what's actually happening with fossil fuel. And I, I am just curious as to why. Why is that? So I totally agree it is a smokescreen. Uh, and that smokescreen was actually developed by the fossil fuel industry. We know that that, that would uh, make sense. <laughs> yeah, we, we do know that. I mean, this has been this has been published in the peer-reviewed literature. You will find that British Petroleum BP years ago um, had a campaign which was to push away the blame from that went to them to individual. Um, personal responsibilities. So they were the ones that started the notion that we need to be concerned about our individual carbon footprint. They helped us find out what your and my individual carbon footprint is, and they did this in order to sidetrack us from the 800-pound gorilla, which is them. It is the fossil fuel companies, it is the cement industry, it is many uh, of these fossil fuel consuming and producing uh, entities. And don't get me wrong, I'm consuming fossil fuels like you do, okay? And um, we all do. We are all part of that. But I'm just really tired of that sector of society kind of pointing the fingers at others not noticing that three fingers point back at them. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if the general consumer or the listener doesn't even have a chance. So you have extremist groups that seem to con control the media. And, um, you know, 
not that New York Times is bad or The Guardian is necessarily bad, but the uh, I think that we can agree, uh, or at least I feel that there's a narrative that's being pushed in one direction that really will negatively affect individuals' health. I mean, I, I, as a physician who sees patients, I, I care about the well-being of my patients and my kids and what they're hearing. So we have the PR in the media and Hollywood, <laughs> and then we have... Another group, which it's almost as if they can feed off each other because the real issue is fossil fuel. It's not um, animal agriculture or farmers. It's dealing with uh, population in general, which is astronomical. You know, I, um, I keep hearing these comparisons of cars versus cows and, you know, which one is worse and... Um, I know exactly where that discussion originated because I was always anti this discussion um, because it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, I do feel that, yes, animal agriculture is a contributor, but compared to other sectors, a relatively small contributor. But that's not to say that because of that, we can just rest and not do anything. Uh, while we produce 4%, and that's a sizable chunk, um, and not whatever, 40 or 80%, we still need to do our part in reducing those contributions. Okay, so I'm, I, I, ju I just want to make very clear that I am not promoting that animal agriculture is not a big deal. We can, we can lay back and, and rest. But um, my entire focus, the focus of our research is to minimize those impacts of animal agriculture to the greatest extent possible. But we also need to be honest about what size of the total cake that contribution is. If someone is listening and they really want to make a difference, what can they do? Vote. <laughs> okay, I'm not kidding tell me more. I'm not, yeah. I'm not kidding you. Uh, one of the most important um, things that an individual can do is make sure that policy are enacted that really go into the direction of systemic change. Um, without systemic change, nothing will happen. Whether you eat uh, a plant-based burger one day a week or twice a day, uh, twice a week, will not have any measurable impact. Even if, as a nation, we were to eat one of those things every every week, we would still not have a measurable impact. Mm. But uh, whether or not our our energy mix in the United States is fossil fuel or nuclear or regenerative or so. That makes a big difference. Okay, that makes a big difference. Um, also, what happens in other parts of the world, for example, in China, has a major impact. If the, if if we all do the best we can, but they, the Chinese, continue on their current trajectory of building an unbelievable amount of new coal-fired power plants every every year, uh, then I'm very negative, very pessimistic. Okay, we have to work with them to help them change their minds because otherwise whatever we do here will be futile. It will be totally overshadowed by what's going on there. So this is really a global problem. It's not a, a US problem. It's not a single country problem. This is a global issue. This is totally a global issue. If you believe the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC, and I'm now just focusing on livestock internationally, The Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change says that 80%, of all global livestock-related greenhouse gases occur in developing countries. 
Think about this. India and Brazil, these two countries alone, have more cattle than the rest of the world combined. If they have issues with efficiency, with environmental impact and so on, and these issues are not addressed, then that will overshadow everything else that's happening in the world. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show. The sponsors make the show possible. So thank you to Inside Tracker. Why Inside Tracker? I partnered with Inside Tracker because I think it's really, really important for you as a listener to be able to get blood work no matter where you are and not have to wait on anybody, but to actually arm yourself with your own knowledge. And the way that you're going to do that is you're going to see what's going on with your body. You can head over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off. This is a direct-to-consumer lab draw. This is hugely important. Again, it allows you to see what is going on with your body, what your inflammatory markers are, what your thyroid is doing, what your hormones are doing, how your cholesterol markers are, your cardiovascular markers. This was developed by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you are optimized and where you are not. Head over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off for anything in their store. There's all kinds of things there. Again, you guys should be doing blood work and you should be doing it on the regular. I know I do. And if you are my patient, you also do that. Thanks again to Inside Tracker for sponsoring the podcast. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is First Form. You guys know I love First Form and have been with them for years. They make phenomenal products and they're really good humans. One supplement I think every single person should be on is omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fish oils are very important and First Form has full mega. It is very valuable for the brain, for your mood. We are not getting enough in our diets. And in fact, you know, as we're going into winter now for seasonal affective disorder, I always recommend my patients take omega-3 fatty acids. And there are many studies on fish oils rich in both EPA and DHA that are shown to help support cardiovascular health, brain health, eye health. The full mega is formulated with fresh cold water, wild caught Icelandic mackerel, herring, anchovies, and sardines. And I am not going to eat that. So the full mega is a great opportunity to get all the essential fatty acids, the omega-3 essential fatty acids go to first form. That's one dot com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get free shipping. They also have a money back guarantee. You are not going to find a better company. I love these guys, love their products. I know you will too. Wow. So um, how is that even going to be addressed? So currently it's not being addressed. So for example, in India, uh, there's an issue with religion and cattle, uh, where cattle are holy. And so if a, if a dairy cow, which they have 300 million, 300 million, we have 9 million, they have 300 million. If and once a dairy cow stops lactating, stops producing milk, 
then she's just let gone off. Okay, she can just walk around freely for the rest of her life, and that means they open the door, and this cow will now walk through the streets of Delhi, and eat and excrete and produce greenhouse gases and so on, but not produce milk ever again. Those animals we refer to as idle livestock, idle animals, meaning it's like you running your car in your driveway, but you're not driving it. The engine is on, but you're not driving it. Okay, That's what happens to these cows. They are alive and they live another five, six, ten years, but they're not producing any food and nobody will ever eat them. These are idle animals, and we're not talking about a few million. We're talking about hundreds of millions of animals in the world that are idle animals. They don't ever produce food because of various reasons. Mm. That's a lot. That's a lot of animals. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that domestic animals are not considered livestock, but do they play a role in any of this discussion? <laughs> well, you make me laugh. Um, in the United States, we have nine million dairy cows today. Any idea how many horses we have? We have 9.5 million horses. And we have 170 million dogs and cats. And these dogs and cats in the United States consume one-third of all animal source foods. So one-third of all protein that comes from animal agriculture, one-third of all that food goes into dogs and cats. I can guarantee you, I have never in my 30 years in this field ever heard anybody talk about the environmental footprint of horses or dogs or cats because many or most people don't even view them as animals. They, they don't even view them as, as pets anymore. They view them as family members. And so who would criticize their own family members? So people, people absolutely don't have that on their radar, even though the, the impacts are considerable. Hmm. And then what about deers and other animals that are just roaming? So wildlife is um, totally under the radar and um, we can't control uh, them. We can't control their environmental footprint and so on. And they are not even considered as um, um, I would say all the agencies out there, whether it's the EPA or state agencies, um, they only look at what we as humans can um can mitigate, can change, and that's what's called anthropogenic emissions. And so that means emissions associated with activities that are associated with humans. And so all natural emissions like volcanoes and oceans and swamps and wildlife are not considered. Um, so the producer of, of the show, Stefan, had a really good question. And he said, you know, people talk a lot about animal agriculture, they talk a lot about dairy, and they talk about cattle, but what about fish? Uh, fish and sustainability and climate change and the aquatic environment? So aquaculture plays a very important role globally in feeding people, okay, a very important role. I think aquaculture is actually the most important protein uh, source globally. Um, they are not producing greenhouse gases, um, as much, the animals don't themselves, but um, the feed that's produced for intensive aquaculture might. Um, but the main environmental footprint of aquaculture is more uh, nutrient related, like, um, let's say, phosphorus and uh, nitrogen and so on emissions that, that make it into aquatic systems and lead to algae bloom and lead to uh, pollution of sorts um, of various uh, nutrient streams. 
So I think that's where the, the major concern is. And then, of course, um, the richer the world gets, the more disposable income, particularly um, is available in developing countries, the more animal source foods is, de is demanded, is, uh, is asked for. So the first thing that happens when you are a family, father or mother in the developing countries and you have some more money available is to buy some fish or is to buy some eggs or some milk for your family. Um, because if you never had that and now you have that available, that's the first thing that you, that you change in your life. And because so many hundreds of millions of people are lifted out of extreme poverty into a middle class, this is happening at a fast pace. The demand for animal source foods is going up rapidly, rapidly. And so this is why this whole discussion that we have here, this Hollywood type discussion, is not really getting us anywhere. The demand for animal source foods is increasing by up to 70% in the next few decades, seven zero. So... Uh, this whole discussion around shall we have a Beyond Burger is one that you can have in Hollywood, but not one that you can have in most population centers of the world, where we need to produce more nutrient-dense food. And the question is, how do we do it in the most responsible way? Is that what is your uh, future research? Are you working on that now? I mean, I know that you're working on multiple multiple things with your, you have a center called CLEAR, right? Yes. Is it a... And that, what does that stand for? The CLEAR Center is a sustainability center. We do research and communication around uh, livestock sustainability. CLEAR stands for Clarity and Leadership in Environmental Awareness and Research. A long, a long name, therefore the, the acronym. Um, so next week I'll be in Rome and I'll be at the uh, United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, um, because the uh, concerns they have are shared by the concerns I have, and they're the ones that I just outlined, which is how do we produce all the food we need to feed three times more people in our lifetime without depleting all natural resources? This is, I think, a discussion that must be held. And one that we should all agree upon is, is really paramount. And we should not really get lost in some weird sidearms and... Uh, and luxury discussions over whether we eat this uh, meat or this uh, plant-based alternative, that's something that addresses or that's of question for a few people in the world, but not for the masses. That's very humbling. I think that that's going to be very humbling for the listener as well, because, you know, in the U.S., as you well know, we seem to argue about nutrition all the time. And for whatever reason that is, it doesn't necessarily get us anywhere, um, you know, I feel very strongly that I have a, a mission and a responsibility to protect the people that I can. And these are some of the reasons that I speak out about um, animal agriculture and the importance of red meat in our diet. But globally, again, it's a, it's a luxury. They would laugh if they saw the conversations and the things that we're dealing with here because at the other end of the spectrum, people don't know how to feed their families and they struggle to get nutrient-dense foods well i mean i i do travel enough uh, all all throughout the world south america african countries asian countries and the one thing they don't do is laugh about our discussion they mm. just shake their heads they shake their heads in disbelief they say what what are they talking about this is unbelievable um so i don't want to ridicule people who are concerned about what they eat they should think about what they eat because we eat a lot of junk 
okay? We should eat less ultra-processed foods, okay? We should eat less of this stuff that is formulated, carefully crafted for us to overeat, continuously overeat. And we all know what this is, you know, chips and all this stuff that, 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 uh, that we are fed in public places, that our kids are fed in schools, uh, that we know is bad for us. We know causes diabetes. We know causes cardiovascular issues. We know causes other health concerns. You know, you're a doctor, and and uh, so you uh, deal with health. I am an agronomist. I deal with food. The two areas, providing health and providing food, are the two most the two most strategically important sectors of society. We must uphold them, and we must foster them, because if we don't then we fail as a society. We must do better in addressing health and food concurrently and not put one of those sectors down uh, because otherwise, I'll be very uh, clear here, otherwise I think we'll have some real big problems coming up. Mm. And I'm not sure who will feed the world if our farmers say, you know what, we have enough of this bashing. Yeah. Uh, a few really important takeaways that I'm hearing is Number one, don't waste food. We're wasting 40% of our calories. Don't waste food. Buy what you are going to eat. Support local farmers. What else do you have for me? Well, spend more time on food, on learning about food, learning about cooking, learning about not wasting, learning about the externalities of food. For example, food waste, what does that mean? And, and how big a deal is that? Um, learn about nutrient-dense food, the food that's uh, important to nourish your body, and learn about the stuff that is made to for you to, to buy it and enjoy it, but maybe that's not good for you. Maybe it's not good for your health. Um, I think food is so critically important, not just because we enjoy it, not just because it tastes good or it nourishes us, but because if you if you don't pay attention to what you eat then you might it might make you sick it might make you sick and it might make our environment sick too it might be negative not just for your personal health but also for our environmental health you must place a high uh, level of time and effort onto the foods that you and your families eat i do it My family has rented a little plot of land from a local farmer here, and we're actually growing our own vegetables now. That is and impressive. I tell you, and I tell <laughs> you, because it's an organic farm, we have to grow it organically. You know That is so tough. It is so tough to do. I have such a respect for our farmers because I'm doing some of that ourselves. And the, re the reason is, well, first of all, we, we like to see how this grows. But secondly, we want our kids to learn about it. I feel that the fact that our kids don't learn about food in school is a huge problem. They should learn about food. They should learn about nutrients. They should learn about health much more than they do. Just like they should learn about money. They don't learn that either. I mean, how can it be that our kids don't learn about all the things that really matter in life, like food, like health, like money, um, in those growing years? Well, um, your kids are going to be able to teach my kids something because I, I tell you what, <laughs> cooking is not in our wheelhouse, nor is planting. I, I mean, I think that they've killed each one of the plants that we have in our house and it's not even growing anything. In terms of um, 
you know, you talk a lot about marginal land. And I think people don't know what that is. I also think there's a lot of conversation about regenerative agriculture versus not, I don't even know if non-regenerative agriculture is, mm-hmm. is a term, but um, I would love for you to speak on both of those things. Okay. So if you think um, of a normal sheet of paper like this here being the entire surface of the earth, okay, if this were all of it, then um, folding it twice would yield the total amount of land in the world. So the whole sheet is the entire surface of the world. This here is all the land in the world. If you now take a business card, and I have one handy here, then this business card is the equivalent amount of all agricultural land. So this is all land in the world. This here is all agricultural land. That's all we have. If I now fold this business card and I fold it twice into one piece that's two thirds and the other that's one third, and rip this business card into pieces, then the following happens. So as a reminder, this is all agricultural land. The two-thirds piece is all agricultural land that's referred to as marginal. It's called marginal because you cannot grow crops there. It's too dry, it's too hilly or too rocky or not fertile enough. You cannot grow crops there, but it's still considered agricultural land. Why? Because you can still use this to produce food. Namely, you can graze ruminants there. Cattle, sheep, goats, they can graze there because what grows there is grass. And that contains cellulose, and that cellulose can be made into meat or milk. Two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world is marginal and can only be used by ruminant livestock to make animal source foods. The remainder of my business card, the one-third piece, is all the land that's referred to as arable. And on arable land, you can grow crops. Because it is fertile enough, there is enough water and so on. So two-thirds is marginal, one-third is arable. And in my opinion, we need all of that. And we need to use this agricultural land in the most efficient way we know of. Because if we don't, we will not be able to feed the 2050 challenge of feeding three times more people in our lifetimes. That is sobering. And I was really hoping that you were going to pull the business card because I've watched, I've listened to many of your lectures. Um, and I'm so glad that here, now we have it. <laughs> your um, large paper to the small paper, that is very, very scary to think that that's all that there is. You know, when, you know, as I was prepping for this, I was thinking, okay, we're going to talk about agriculture, we're going to talk about eating locally. And what I realize is that it's not really about eating locally. It's a much bigger problem in terms of how are we going to feed all of these people? And uh, basically, we're going to produce food where we can, and we're going to send it to where it needs to go. And that's critical. Many of your listeners might think that... Um One of the most important contributions of, of the food footprint is the transportation of food from one place of the world to another. But that's not the main point. You can, you can live in London, England, and get, uh, let's say, lamb from Sussex uh, an hour away, which has a higher environmental footprint than getting it from New Zealand and shipped to London. Um, the transportation is not the main one. The production on the farm is the main footprint determinator and so um, it is actually so for example if you were to i don't know where you live if i were to go to new a, york 
We're in New okay. York. All right. So if I were to go to a welcome local, to visit. <laughs> yeah. If I were to go to a to a local farm and and buy my my carton of eggs from that farm, I would drive there 10 or 20 miles to get it. Then this drive there would increase the footprint of each egg drastically versus me going to Walmart and buying it there. That footprint is much lower, whether we like it or not. I like the idea to go to farmer's market. I, I do it myself. And I do it to support farmers, and I like to talk to farmers and all of that. I'm willing to pay more by going to farmer's markets. But it's not necessarily the food with a lower environmental footprint. I have to tell you that. The food with the lowest environmental footprint is the one that's produced in the most efficient ways. And that has been shown over and over and over again. But with that said, I support farmers in my area and here in California and so on. I think it's important for us to do that. It's very important for you too to do that, especially in New York, where many of your local farmers in New York State are suffering like crazy these days. They are leaving their farms in drones. And that is a real problem because soon you will not have anything local if it continues like that. Your farmers in New York State are having enough and they are leaving. Yeah, we do support local farmers. A uh, shout out to Bonin. Bonin is a, is a local farm that we use. And um, I think it's really important. What are we going to do? I mean, what are we going to do uh, on the U.S. sector? I know that what we do seems to have not a huge impact, but we all want to do the best that we can in terms of I, I get the, the sense of learning about food from a practicality standpoint. How can we make better decisions? Do we even travel less? Does that make a, a difference? What What are we going to do in terms of improving climate change? And then, uh, of course, the next logical question is how long, you know, how significant is climate change? Is it about the temperature rising and how long does that take? And Climate change is, a, I'm sorry, climate change is a very significant problem, one that we must work on. And, uh, and I have dedicated my life to working on this with farmers. And um, uh, you're asking a very broad question. And it's very important. Okay, what do we do? As a society, what we must do is we must reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, not just here, but all over the world. If we don't do it, then we will not succeed in our fight against the changing climate. Uh, we must also support our farmers in helping them reduce environmental footprint of food production. And that's crop producers and its livestock producers alike. We must help them to improve practices to reduce unwanted nitrogen emissions, unwanted carbon emissions, unwanted phosphorus emissions, and so on. These are some of the most important people in our country. Don't forget, every time you put a bite in your mouth, you put something in your mouth that was grown on a farm. It was maybe processed, but the original ingredients were grown on a farm. And you as a citizen, you have to decide, do you want that food to be produced here? Or do you not care where it's produced? If you do want it produced here, then maybe you think about before you bash a farmer in the next uh, foreseeable future. Because many of these farmers are having enough and they say, you know what, I don't need this for myself and I certainly don't need this for my kids. I'm out of here. I see it happening very often. And the more often it happens, we lose this huge diversity of farming activities in this country. 
uh, large farmers become super large and we will not no longer have any kind of the type of farm that many of your consumers are thinking of when thinking about farmers. Uh, we will only have some very, very large scale ones and that's it. And everybody else will be out of business. And uh, we need to change the way we treat our farmers. We need to change the way we think about food. And we need to make it a priority because it is a priority. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and the listener about the importance of climate change and, and really what we can do and where we need to put our efforts and perhaps even fight less amongst ourselves to be able to make major change in the world. Yeah, I think that would be a great start. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lai. Yeah. And we will put where to find you. You're very active on Twitter. Uh, we'll also link to Clear. How else can we support you? Um, I think if you really spend more time on food, more time on farmers, that would be a great way to helping all of us. And other than that, um, if you connect with me, with my center, that would be wonderful. All right. We will link everything. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.